are in a series called Really. Um, the idea behind the series is that uh, we're talking about people in the Bible that aren't necessarily perfect, right? They, they show their flaws very clearly written in Scripture. And we think really that this is the kind of person that God is going to use. And so today we're saying, really, can God use an adulterer? Is that something that he can do? And you may be saying, really, we're going to talk about adultery, our favorite subject today uh, at church. But yes, we are. This is a very well-known story, um, and it is one that a lot of you probably have read. It has a lot of intrigue, and we're going to use it to kind of dissect, too, a little bit about the nature of sin. And so we're going to start there. If you're taking notes with our point number one is going to be the nature of sin. But before we get into that, let me go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, which is true. We thank you that you teach us by your word and by your spirit. Lord, we thank you that you use broken people. And um, we ask you uh, to teach us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I like this series. Uh, One of the things I like about it, and I think it speaks to the truth of Scripture in general, is the fact that God, God uses broken people and, we, and the, the Bible doesn't really shy away from the brokenness of the people in, in Scripture, especially the Old Testament. There is some patriarch sin and things that are happening that, I mean, if, if the Bible was, was a movie that showed everything, I mean, there'd be, it'd be a hard R, right? Or, you know, it would, it would be rough because there's a lot going on in Scripture that, that uh, the Bible just says, hey, yeah, this is somebody who David is a man after God's own heart, right? He is... He is someone that is shown as a champion, somebody that, that we, we want to be like in so many ways, and yet he is not above a heinous sin, and, and that's what happens in this, in this chapter. Um, so we're going to start out again talking about, let's, let's talk about the nature of sin, okay? So how does sin develop? This, is, this particular story kind of unpacks things in a way where you can kind of see it progress and then see it multiply, and it's, it's fascinating uh, the way we see this happen. So it starts out, the first thing I want to point out is that idleness is one of the key factors that we can watch out for when it comes to sin in our life. So uh, beginning in verse 1, he says, when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. Right out of the gate, the writer is giving us some clues about where he's going. Um, there's a little bit of a judgment right there, right? He's saying, kings, this is the season when kings go to battle. But where's David? David sends somebody else in his stead. So David sends Joab. Then when we go to verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a beautiful woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Okay, so right out of the gate we have idleness is one of those things. He's laying on his couch. Again, that doesn't have to be in the, in, in the Scripture. It doesn't have to say that. Why does the writer put that he's laying on his couch, right? He could have just started the story with he was walking on the roof. But they want to show that David is idle. Um, I, I used to do youth ministry before I came to Seven Hills Fellowship, and I, for 30 years, uh, I was a, a youth pastor and worked with teenagers, and I used to have an accountability group with guys, and one of the things that they would struggle with so often is pornography, and it's a, it's a huge problem in our culture, and I think most of you are aware of that. But one of the things that was really interesting that I discovered was idleness was a key factor in that. Um, guys would be, we'd be talking about it, and they'd be getting 
you know, really growing in their self-control and, and starting to get victory over this problem. And then we would come up on like a spring break or something where they were home all day long. Uh, you know, you could almost say, you could almost read this story. It happened while I was lying around on my couch with nothing but a laptop and an iPad, right? And, and idleness just doesn't do us well. It doesn't work well in our lives uh, when it comes to certain sins, and so it didn't work well for David either. So he, he was idle. He, was, he, he wasn't about the kind of task that he should have been doing. And he was walking. And so he sees this woman, right? He sees her. And that, that's where the temptation falls, right? He sees a beautiful woman bathing on the roof. Now, we don't know why she's on the roof. Maybe that was kind of a normal thing to bathe on the roof. It would heat the water up, you know. Maybe it was, so it was warmer up there. We don't know. Uh, was she trying to entrap him? We have no idea. But... All we know is he sees her, she's gorgeous, and that in itself is not a sin, right? The fact that he's attracted to a beautiful woman is the way that God made us. Uh, he caught, he, you know, men are supposed to be attracted to women. That is God's design. That's a beautiful thing. Now, what happens next is where sin starts to progress, and we see that unfold in in this story, the line has not yet been crossed, but it says, next he inquired about her. So verse 3, David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now I wonder, the story kind of lays it out like it all happens really fast, but I, don't, I just don't know about that. Like I can almost see him, he sees her, he goes back, he's on his couch, He's hanging out. He, you know, he's sitting there with nothing to do, and he's seeing her over and over in his mind, and, he, and he's starting to fixate on her. You can kind of see it play out. And the next thing he does, he starts to say, well, let me, maybe I should meet her. Who is she? He's asking the question, but you can tell. Was he lying to himself? Because next it says that David sent messengers, and they took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. So did he lie to himself and say, I'll just meet her? We'll just have a conversation. It's not going to go anywhere. I don't know that he already had his mind made up. We don't know that. It's possible that he knew exactly what he was going to do. But we know that ultimately he ended up sleeping with her and she became pregnant. And so it says that she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So this is the ultimate power play here. This could be a textbook Me Too incident. David has all the power in this situation. He's the king. Who is going to resist the king? But we see the way that sin developed in this situation, right? He, he sees her. The temptation happens. He thinks about her. He inquires of her. And then he lay with her. James 1, 13 says this, No one... Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But listen to this, verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is, has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's exactly the way this story unfolded, isn't it? The desire gives birth to sin. In our hearts, it works the same way. You know, as believers, we don't have to follow that exact pattern, do we? 
We have the Holy Spirit. We can see desire, right? Temptation in itself is not a sin, and it doesn't have to give birth to sin. We can say no to it. We can resist the devil, and he will flee from us, right? There, there, there are things we can do as Christians to say no in this situation. And I also wonder, where were David's friends? Who is coming to David and sees this unfolding? Is it just between him and the servants? Does everybody in the castle know what's going on here in the fortress? Who, who knows what is happening here? But David definitely needed a friend in this situation. And it makes me wonder, who is it in your life that has permission to speak truth into your sinfulness? Who do you have that could intercede for you if you start down a road like this? That will say, hey, wait a second, what you're doing, don't, don't, don't call her. Don't have her come before you. You know where that's going to lead. Who is standing in the gap for you and for me? David definitely needed that person, but he didn't have them, right? He was the king, and he continued. So we see how sin developed in him, but now let's talk about how it multiplied. How did sin multiply? The cover-up begins, right? He calls out and he says, hey, Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. You know, an interesting thing about Uriah, he's most famous in this story. David had 30 mighty men that, that are like heroes, that there's all kinds of things written about them. They were incredible warriors. They were with him before he was king. They were just valiant. They were amazing. Uriah the Hittite is one of those 30. He's listed last in the list of mighty men. Here it is, one of David's closest fighting companions, a man who put his life on the line with David multiple, multiple times. He's not just some random guy. That makes the story even worse uh, when you consider that. So he gets Uriah back, so the lying and the deception has started, right? And he's, uh, hey, come back, just tell me about what's going on in the war. I just want to know what's going on. Oh, and while you're here, why don't you go down and, and be with your wife? He's wanting to cover everything up so that he won't find out what has happened. But Uriah is righteous. He is true in this situation. He says, no, far be it from me that I would go and, and be comfortable with my wife while the army's out in the field. The Lord's army, the Ark of the Covenant is out there, and you want me to go and be with my wife now? No. Notice the contrast between Uriah and his righteousness and David and his idleness. Uriah is not going to play games and play along with this deception. So David goes even further. He says, well, stay around one more day and then party with me tonight. And he purposely gets him drunk because he's hoping that he will go on home to his wife. And Uriah again sleeps with the servants at the entrance to the king's house so that he will not go and be with his wife. So David knows that the deception, getting him drunk, the manipulation that he has tried has not worked. So his sin continues to multiply, and then it moves him to murder, right? He kills him with the sword of the Ammonites. He sends a letter. Now, this is stone cold here. By Uriah, he seals a scroll, puts it in Uriah's hands, and says, take this to the general, to Joab. And so he carries the letter with his own death sentence on it to Joab. And after he is killed, word comes back, and David says, don't worry, we know these things happen, and she mourns, Bathsheba mourns for the appropriate amount of time, and then she moves over into the palace and becomes one of David's wives. 
And it says at the end of that passage, this displeased the Lord. He definitely knows. Now, this is a very long story and a long passage, so I'm going to tell a lot of the rest of this in my own words. So if you read 2 Samuel 12, we have this famous confrontation with Nathan, the prophet. Nathan comes in, and David is sitting there, and he says, I've got a story to tell you. And he tells him a story about a rich man who had a bunch of, uh, he had a bunch of, of lambs, and he was uh, very wealthy. He had lots of flocks, and his neighbor was this poor little guy who didn't have much, but he had one little ewe lamb, one little baby lamb, and he played with it, and he fed it from his own hand, and it sat at his table, and he snuggled with it, and he slept with it, and this little lamb was just his pride and joy, and the rich man had some friends come over to visit, and instead of killing one of his own sheep from his flock, he steals the sheep from the little poor man and kills it and serves it to his guests. And when David hears that, He flies into a rage and he says, this is uh, verse 5, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are that man. It's quite dramatic. You can almost get, I get chills just thinking about what it must have been like to be in the throne room at that point when he's confronted and he says, you are are the man. And then Nathan lays out, which is point number two, the consequences of sin. The consequences of sin. And for David, those are pretty dire. He says that the sword will never depart from your house, that as long as David lives, Israel will be at war. Now think about that. How many people are going to die in those wars? Because of David's sin, the sword will never leave his house, and they will always be at war with someone. Then he says, your own family is going to implode, basically. And if you keep reading through 2 Samuel, which is quite interesting, you will see that David's oldest son, Amnon, rapes one of his sisters, and then her brother, Absalom, kills Amnon. So now one of his sons kills the other. Then Absalom tries to usurp the throne and kill David, kill his own father, and is killed by his soldiers. So now he's lost two sons, and his daughter has been violated. And then later on, when Solomon becomes king, uh, another one of his sons, Adonijah, he also tries to usurp the throne and is murdered or killed. So a lot of devastation happens. This sounds like like maybe it, it could be written for the Godfather movie or Peaky Blinders or something like that, right? This is like some serious intrigue happening in his family But Nathan, the prophet, tells us this happens because of David's sin. And then he says the final thing, that the baby that was just born to him from Bathsheba will die. But he says to David, your sin, the Lord has put away your sin, and you shall not die. Those seem like pretty serious consequences that have happened because of what David has done. You know, our... Sin affects our domain. We want to think when we sin that it's just something between me and God, or just me and the other person, or this is just my sin, it's just my thing. But we know really that sin does affect our domain, doesn't it? David's domain was the entire kingdom of Israel, he was the head, and so the consequences affected so many things that were devastating. 
But we know, if you know that there are people in your office maybe that, that are in, embroiled in sin, doesn't that affect everybody who works there? Doesn't your family, isn't it affected by the sin of one or two family members, right? If, 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 you, if your life has been touched by divorce of any type, you know how sin can wreak havoc in your family system and in your domain. So sin has consequences. Sometimes we are punished by God. That's possible for sure. But sometimes the, the consequences of our sin are baked into the sin itself as well, the things that we experience. And so we see these dire consequences, but I want to point out point number three, the nature of David's repentance, the nature of his repentance. David, how did he react? It's very interesting, and we'll just hit on this quickly, is that in 2 Samuel 12, 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. In Psalm 51, which we read earlier, he said, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. David recognizes that there is a holy and just and perfect God who has given him everything, has raised him up to be king. And yes, he has sinned against people, but ultimately all of us, our sin is also primarily against God. David recognizes that in this passage and in Psalm 51. And he recognizes and he confesses his sin to the Lord. And then Nathan says to him, The Lord also has put away your sin, and you shall not die. Now David goes into a period of mourning after this because he, he prays to the Lord. He starts to fast, and he is, he is pleading with God for the life of this child, that this child would not die. And, uh, and, and the, the whole palace starts to worry about him. What's going to happen uh, when the, if it happens, and, and then the child does die. The passage reads like this, But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. And David arose from the earth, washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes, and here was his response. He went into the house of the Lord, and he worshipped. He recognizes the sin that he committed, he knows that it's against a perfect and holy God. And even when the consequences, as dire as they are, came down, he responds by worshiping the Lord. He surrenders to the will of God in this situation. So we've seen the nature of David's repentance. Now let's talk about God's grace. We look at this story, and it's devastating. It's the consequences seem devastating. Where is the hope? Where is the joy that can come in the morning from this situation? You know, Bathsheba conceived, and she had another son, and his name was Solomon. We know about him from Scripture, too, if you continue to read. Solomon actually becomes the greatest king that Israel ever had, the greatest time of prosperity. Scripture describes him as the richest man in the world and the wisest person to ever live. He wrote the book of Proverbs. 2 Samuel 12, 24 says, David comforted his wife Bathsheba and lay with her, and she bore a son and called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him. The Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. Again, through Nathan, God wanted to say specifically, I love Solomon. So that he called his name Jedidiah because the Lord loved him. Jedidiah actually means Beloved of the Lord. Beloved of the Lord. You know, 
couple years ago, I went to uh, Portugal, and I was walking down the street, and uh, I looked up on the side of this building, and I see this pile of trash. And you look at that, and it's car bumpers, and you see like an old house fan in there, and you see that it's just kind of a hot mess. And I'm like, well, that's, you know, art is kind of beauties in the eye of the beholder, but that's pretty rough looking. I don't know about you. Uh, I ended up keep walking with my friends, and we, when I got across the street, I turned around and looked, and this is what I saw. So I love this kind of art. It's amazing to me that people can do this, right? They can, they can take a bunch of trash and make something beautiful out of it. And really, that's what God is doing for each one of us. We look at the sin in our lives. We look at the consequences. We look at the brokenness in this world that happens. And what we see is a bunch of trash. We see our sins so clearly, and it weighs us down. And when we get to heaven and we look back at our life, God takes it and he makes something beautiful. Now, this, this is a, a, a trash panda, so maybe that's not as beautiful. I think our picture is a little beautiful, more beautiful than that, right? That he, he takes the, the garbage, the sin, the things that we do, our brokenness, and it's all by his design because he can see it from the distance and he can turn it into the beautiful picture of what he wants us to be. That's what he did in David's life and that's what he's doing in your life and in my life. Without David's sin, Solomon doesn't exist, right? He was exactly who he was supposed to be. He was the perfect blend of David and the perfect blend of Bathsheba. He grew up seeing the consequences of his father's sin. And you know what it did? It implanted wisdom into his life so that he was the wisest person to ever live. It's pretty incredible when you think about it, that God takes our mess and he redeems it. And he is doing that in in David's life. He did it in David's life and he's doing it in our life as well. So in closing, I want to say this. I don't know what your particular brokenness is, what it is that you struggle with. I think there's enough brokenness in this room to write several very interesting stories as well. Uh, I know even in my own life. And once you become a believer and we are raised up to sit, Jesus says that, that we are his adopted sons and daughters, right? We are brothers with Christ, adopted sons and daughters of God. We, we attain that position And yet, I think Satan will come to us at times, and he will try to be Nathan in our lives. And he will say to us, oh, Jesus has saved you, but look at what you just did. You're the man. Have you ever experienced that? Have you experienced waking up in the middle of the night, going through your sins or something that just happened, and Satan is right there at your elbow saying, you are the man. You're the one who did that. You are unworthy. You deserve to die. You don't deserve any of the things that you have. You know, the thing about that statement is it's true. I am the man. I am guilty. I don't deserve the way that God loves me and the things that he's done. But did you see the the type of Christ that's also in this story? Who's the one who stands out that points us to Jesus? It's Uriah the Hittite. Right? He's perfect. He's perfect from beginning to end. And you know what? God the Father, the King of the universe, 
sat down and wrote out a plan, a plan of love and reconciliation and repentance, but embedded in that plan was a death sentence. And then he handed that death sentence to his son. And his son came to us. And he gave us the message of love and of power and of reconciliation. But embedded in that, he also carried his own death sentence to earth, knowing what would happen to him so that you and I could live. Uriah points right to Jesus and what he did. He gave us that message and we killed him for it. Oh, but he lives. He lives now and he intercedes for us with our Heavenly Father in heaven. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, this, this story tells us a lot about the nature of sin in our own lives. The nature of consequences. How we can truly repent and surrender to your plan, even, even the consequences of our sin at times, Lord. But the main consequence, the main punishment for our sin fell on your son, Jesus. And Lord, we praise you for the gift of righteousness that comes from knowing him. We thank you for this story. We thank you for the way that you teach us and that you love us in Christ's name.